like obviously there's his market criticism yeah. but he like destroys critical race theory in it like so i was like of course the left ignores that of course <laughs> going to talk about your favorite subject today we're going to talk about my favorite subject the pope well not the pope but yeah we're going to talk about the pope we're going to talk about the pope a little catholicism. bit catholicism catholicism in general so that'll be exciting for you fired up and passionate for episode number 10 what a that's great right. way to celebrate well let's uh i brought along some campari today because i figured if we're going to talk catholicism we should have an italian spirit to go along with our discussion and i brought these little cordial glasses i don't know if i've ever had this type of liquor so Oh, you're in for a treat. Do you know anything about it? I feel like you know about everything, so. Well, yeah, it's just a, it's an herbal like, aperitif. It's supposed to kind of get your uh, digestion going, and it's uh, made this bright red color. It used to be made with uh, beetle shells. I don't think it is anything more. Oh, I think rats. it's synthetic, but they use these these red beetles to color the, the liqueur. Is this like, an, traditionally, is this an after-dinner drink? Is this... I believe it's a before-dinner aperitif. It's supposed to kind of get oh, your... just get things revved up. Get it revved to... up. It's great with soda water. It's great in cocktails. Interesting. I'm excited. It's cool. Yeah, it's kind of bitter. I feel but like I, I'm expanding. I, I like a bitter flavor. Cheers. I'm not a sweet guy. I don't prefer things not to be sweet. Oh, that's really cool. Isn't it nice? It goes great with like a grapefruit juice or something. It's it got kind of a citrusy like a flavor. Juice a little bit. Yeah, that bitterness to it. Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. Good. First time. Maybe about that. My one um, really good friend from college, I call him a renaissance man. He was a Marine Corps infantry guy. He went into like the tech world. Then he went and became a, I don't know what the right term is, but a winemaker. He went to wine school. Okay. And so he's been giving, throwing ideas. He's been listening to the podcast and throwing ideas for us to try different stuff. So Cool. Have him send us some wine. We'll, yeah. He can sponsor us. You know? I feel like we got to do one October beer tasting session. Yeah. Matt recommended that. That's a good idea. So um, I wanted to talk about the Pope because he's recently released this encyclical, uh, Tutti Fratelli, I believe it's called. Yeah, very good. Better than I could pronounce it. So whew, I studied Italian in college. Oh. So <laughs> Tutti Fratelli, all brothers. Nice. And he, in, in addition to a number of other topics, he kind of goes after capitalism. And it's not the first time he's done it. He's gone after capitalism a few times. And so I wanted to just kind of dive into a discussion of that and um, – the kind of the, the Catholic Church's position on, a, on economics and uh, the history a little bit. So yeah, you're the right person to have on for this. So we'll talk oh, about it. It's a lot of pressure. But no, this is definitely my passion. When we start, I want to read this quote from the encyclical because yeah. I, I think it's confusing and I don't really understand what he's talking about. Um, he says, It is imperative to have a proactive economic policy directed at promoting an economy that favors productive diversity and business creativity and makes it possible for jobs to be created and not cut. I don't think I understand what productive diversity means. It doesn't sound all that bad. I was reading that section too. Like I'm all for a sounds like division of labor to me off the cusp, but like so like I'm all for division of labor, I'm all for diversity and a robust market. This I don't know, Pope Francis, he for someone who pays attention pretty close, probably better than most to uh, the goings on of the Catholic Church being a, a devout Catholic. He's very vague when he should be specific right and then he's very specific when he probably should have just been vague 
So it keeps things pretty confusing for the lay faithful who are busy in their lives and then they hear these hot takes on the news and, you know, the news who's reporting it is not Catholic at all, but they're grabbing the one-liners. Right. Well, explain to people about the doctrine of uh, papal infallibility because I think people have a misconception about uh, Catholics having to agree with everything the Pope says because he's supposed to be infallible and that's not really what that means. Can you explain how that works? Papal infallibility um, means when the Pope is infallible, he's speaking ex cathedra which essentially means he cannot be disagreed with. And I am 99% positive this is only, and I'm not, I don't not, I took theology and philosophy. I went to a Catholic school. I am pretty sure this has only occurred twice in the history of the church. Um, So any other time, the lay faithful, which are the everyday Catholics like myself, are free to disagree. We but we respect the church's authority when it comes to morals and theology economics the church has no authority in they can comment just like they could comment on who's going to win the super bowl but you can take those two things relatively the same right um but that is a pretty big misunderstanding i get a lot of my friends who are catholic curious or my protestant friends who just want to debate me and try to rub the reformation in my face that you know i'm somehow have to submit give up all my free you know my free thinking my to the authority of the Pope, which is completely false because we've had plenty of corrupt popes um, in our life. The bishops and cardinals have always been disappointing for the collectively. Um, the only reason the church is still here is has nothing to do with the leadership in the church. It is, in my opinion, the grace of God and the lay faithful that keep pushing back on these crazy people to get into power. Yeah, I find this interesting because, you know, um, Pope Francis took his name from Francis of Assisi, who was concerned with poverty and concerned with the poor and helping people. And so, like, that's supposed to be a big focus of Francis is helping the poor. And he seems completely ignorant of the fact that capitalism has done more to raise people out of poverty around the globe than any other you know the catholic church existed for a thousand years before capitalism came along and i think you know capitalism has done more in the time it's been around to raise people out of poverty than the church did before capitalism existed and he seems to be you know willfully ignorant of that fact and the fact that having this system where people have the economic freedom to own property there's a part in the encyclical where he's kind of critical of privately owned property mm-hmm. yeah we should talk about we that we should talk about that but it, like, having privately owned property is what has allowed people to be raised out of poverty around the globe and it, it does it a lot more efficiently than just charity or, or uh, church activity does and I'm concerned that he doesn't seem to understand that yeah and he certainly has a heart for the poor and the left in America I think the one big problem is we like to try to fit the church into our political boxes and it shouldn't go in there no um, but the left loves to tout this as, and I got, I got you on the right. And there's a pretty big contingency of Catholics that are on. If we had to divide everyone to left or right, that are on the right, um, he f- seems to ignore a lot of past church fathers, doctors of the church, like Aquinas, who wrote mm. the Summa Theologia, um, who in there. So there's a line that he cites, and I'm gonna blank on it. Um, I thought I jotted it down here, but um, that the Material goods of the of the world should be ordered towards um, the collective. Um, I'm not going to say the words like some collective good or just the whole of society. Yes, and that comes from. I it might come from Aquinas or somewhere else. But what he also ignores is that Aquinas also in the Summa hits on that the best. So essentially, what that is saying is, God gives all the material things in the world. This is the Catholic teaching 
to the people of the world. Right. Um, for us to use. But it is the the higher order or the common good, I forgot what the exact ver- verbiage is, is we have to use those these materials to benefit mankind. Right. But then Aquinas goes on to say the best way and to f- meet the needs of people and to fill these wants due to scarcity. And the Aquinas is going to say the best way to do this is through private property. Yeah. It's the most efficient. And this is Aquinas, who's probably the most studied teacher of the church. I think there's a real distinction to be made here because, you know, saying we should use our property to help people and provide for the common good is fine. I don't have an issue with saying that, but it's the proactive economic policy that he talks about in this encyclical yep. that it, the quote I just read that implies that people should be forced through government action, through government coercion to, to do use their property in this way rather than doing it because their theology demands it or because it's out of the goodness of their heart. And I think that's a real sticking point for me is saying that not only should this be done in a certain way, it should be done this way by force if people won't yeah, do it. It sounds coercive. Um, and he's a lot of people like to say like, oh, this pope's a socialist or a communist, and he certainly not, doesn't ever come across friendly to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand why they say that. I actually don't think he is a Marxist. Um, I think a big thing that we miss is where he's come from. Um, I don't think he's friendly to the market. I'm not a huge fan of this pope personally. I he's from to, Argentina, right? Yeah, he's from Argentina, and Argentina as a society is as a political culture is extremely corrupt his only idea of capitalism is cronyism um you are in cahoots with the government the folks who are of all the money are also their friends are in power they collude and that's all he knows of a in quotations a market economy which it's not it's cronyism it's some you know and so that's his idea of capitalism he's never seen a relatively free market now i think he's actually gotten slightly softer if you actually have read him over since he's since 2013 him pope yeah i feel like he's starting to get more insight but i also think a lot of people around him are of the same mindset so a lot of it might have to do who's whispering in his ear so he has a fundamental misunderstanding of the market um catholics are and everyone's free to criticize him and critique him uh, and catholics shouldn't be afraid to it should be done with respect, but I think a lot of it, if you look at where he's come from, you start understanding at least why he's saying these sure. preposterously false economic statements. Well, a lot of people will say that Jesus was a socialist, and these typically are non-Christians who say this, but I'd be interested in your uh, interpretation of that and your response to that claim that people say that Jesus' teachings uh, advocate socialism. Yeah, there is... I know there, there's the famous parable in the Bible where Christ, you know, you know, they ask Jesus about taxes and he says, give unto Caesar that is Caesar's. And that's when they love to grab at. And the other one is in either the books of Romans or Acts when the married couple comes to Peter and they get struck down because they hadn't shared their property yeah. with everyone. They love to say that, like, look, hey, the early Christians were socialists. And that that is completely misread. And there Peter even says when he's, um, reprimanding them is like, was your property not yours? Was the prof- proceeds when you sold it not also yours? And they were struck down because they lied to him. Yeah. But they love to leave that part out and say, oh, look, because they were living in a shared community, but it wasn't, you know, people were allowed to keep their property. You were called to share it with the community. You're allowed to, ke- you still had ownership. So even in, Jesus was by far not a socialist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he, in that passage, is simply saying, what is God is God's, and what is earthly is bound to earth. Sure. Um, and I know Lawrence, uh, is it Lawrence Reed of Fee, the past president of Fee? I think it's Leonard Reed. Leonard Reed, sorry. Uh, the, the most recent one. Yeah. 
um, who wrote he's he's still around. He just stepped down. Uh, he wrote a nice pamphlet on covering mm. that thing that does a much better job. So if anyone's interested, you should look that up on. Yeah, the absolutely. I do want to push you on this a little bit though, because I feel like Christianity uh, tends to make a virtue of poverty in a way that I don't know is particularly helpful. There's, of course, the passage about a rich man can't get into heaven. It's harder, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Jesus in three out of the four gospels, I think, um, exhorts people to sell everything that they own. He says in Luke, he says, you can't be my follower or my disciple unless you sell everything that you own and give it to the poor. Uh, There's a lot of kind of admonishing people not to have any possessions and, and to get rid of everything that they own and to be poor. And like, that's a good thing. There's, there's this talk about uh, take no thought for the morrow. Don't worry about where your food's coming from. Don't worry about where your housing is going to come from. God will take care of it. And that seems to me a counterproductive strategy to try to increase wealth. If you're trying to make it seem like you're going to be more rewarded by the kingdom of heaven, by being poor and by having no possessions. I think, and I think this, we can tie this back to Pope Francis too, a little bit and get a little understanding of where he's coming from. Um, the, the one initial, the, uh, the one parable that Jesus tells about the, t- the talents where he gives, the the master gives three, uh, one talent, five talents, and ten talents to three different servants and leaves. And in returns, he rewards those who actually had created profit. Yeah. So that, you know, is a great point to say that, you know, obviously Jesus does not, you know, admonish um, actually, you know, being productive with your resources and creating profit. And actually the one who created the most profit was rewarded right. um, the most. Um, a lot of times with, um, I know it was Nicodemus could not um, give up his position and leave Christ. He was one of the Pharisees, um, but that was believed, truly believed Christ was uh, the son of God. A lot of it is these, and I think Pope Francis as to these material goods in these people's lives, they said to give it up, had reached a place of idolatry right. and were prohibiting these people from following Christ. They were getting in the way. And a lot of, I think, Pope Francis, what he's doing is, and a lot of times I think John Paul II certainly said it in his past encyclical, Sentimus uh, Anus, um, but I probably just mispronounced that, but um, that was a very pro-market encyclical. He wrote at the 100-year anniversary of Rerum Novarum, which was Pope Leo, which yeah. is probably the most famous social doctrine. But even there, he critiques elevating material goods too high. The market... Where I think actually I'll say this, I think libertarians go wrong is we elevate the market too high. I like to say we fetishize it. Okay, uh, fair enough. The market's amoral. And liberty also, um, so I'll start with market. The market's amoral. The market is not good, it's not bad. The market's made up of people. Yep. It's human action. And the people that are part of this market bring their moral foundations into the market. And these moral foundations, wherever they are formed, you know, that's what decides what products are going to be created because we value certain things differently. So the importance of the market is to have a moral foundation. And a lot of times these popes are critiquing, if you misorder or disorder things in society, things are going to get out of whack, which is if we elevate the market too high, because I think the one quote that was really critiqued on by Pope Francis was not every need can be met by the market. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. Um, it's true that not every need can be met by the market. There's lots of intangible, immaterial needs, spiritual needs, or you know, uh, emotional needs that can't necessarily be met by the market. And I don't think anybody would really disagree with that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think the the distinction that needs to be made is the difference between a moral exhortation saying this is the way sh- people should behave, this is how people should order their lives, this is what will bring you happiness, this is what will bring you salvation or whatever, um, versus this is what the government should do, this is what policy should be. 
And I think that's where this pope often goes wrong, is he, he strays from just strictly moral or theological guidance into political guidance. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, that's a whole other animal. Because you're right, if the market is just people coming together, and I, the market's almost, it's almost wrong to even use it as a noun. It's more of a verb. It's, it's the actions of a collective of people doing things together. And it's a process that takes place. There's a lot of, you know, uh, the lesser known Austrian economists who believe that the market is a process, and that's how they see it. And I think that's a good way to look at it. But yeah, the process can't be moral or immoral. It's just what people do. And it, it boils down to basically how good or how bad people are. And there's certain benefits to having a, a process that doesn't involve uh, external coercion on the actors in the market. And that can produce good things. But yeah, it's it's not a it's not really a political position. It's just an understanding of how people interact and how they work. And I think that's where the Pope goes wrong is straying into this politics and this uh, prescription for what governments ought to do. I think he, I guess he's also a head of state in addition to a head of church, yeah, though, right? So is, I think he's also where he gets wrong. We mentioned earlier his critique of private property, he called mm. it a secondary right. Uh, and I think he has again. He's a lot smarter than me. Um, if I ever got into a theological discussion with him, he would absolutely trounce me. But he thinks he's fundamentally misunderstands private property because private property. Again, it's not an absolute right. Nothing's absolute, according to the church, including, like, even the Catholic Church allows a little bit for capital punishment. There's, like, a small margin. So even that is an absolute. But private property is the... Pro- they, they, obviously, people say, well, human rights are the most important right. And private property, oh, that's secondary to human rights. Private property is an offshoot or a sub-right of human rights. It's a protector of human rights. And I don't think he gets that. I would go even further than that and say that private property is is the primary right. And it's it's an extension of your right to your life and your control over your own body. Uh, because private property arises from, if you take kind of a John Lockean view of private property, it arises from what you do with your labor. How, what you create, what you build, what you make. And that is what you own as a private property right. You have control over your own labor, you have control over your own body, and then the product of that is then yours by right. And that's what private property is. And so I guess my question to the Pope would be like, if you think private property is a secondary right, what do you think is the primary right? Because I don't see there's a distinction between the right to life and the right to the control over your own body uh, and the right for property. I think those are the same right, basically. Yeah, and he... That would be, yeah, I would love to pick it because he's the encyclical, if you read it, and I read it a few chunks of it because I mentioned it's super long. He, the way this is written, it is, it made me a little uncomfortable because it's very humanistic. And I did a few control F searches. Mm-hmm. He very rarely, and I should go look at a more encyclical he only mentioned Jesus Christ twice in it. But he mentions a lot of like the words fraternity, which is a great word, but. And he talks a lot about welcoming other religions into the fold. And usually encyclicals are also addressed to a very specific group, like the bishops of the church or the lay faithful of the church. This wasn't addressed to anybody. So I was like, is this to the whole world? It was very confusing. He seems to have this. I know all the the conspiracy theorists want to say he's, you know, globalist, global order. I don't think he's part of any new world order or one government. I think it's ridiculous conspiracy stuff. But he has that mindset of, I do think he believes the state can somehow be the arbiter of morality and justice. And usually it's the exact opposite if you look at history. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, It's a confusing time to be a Catholic who values freedom. There's a lot of frustrating people who are 
frustrated people who are very confused when dealing with this pope. And right. it doesn't help that the media loves to latch on to like the one-liners in there and then run with them. That's fair. Yeah, uh, I'm sure that the I haven't read the entire encyclical, but I'm sure it's a lot deeper and more involved than the one-liners that yeah. are being reported in headlines. Uh, the other church position historically that I find really interesting is the prohibition on usury, which is the lending of money with interest. Um, I read there's a great book called uh, The History of Economic Thought Before Adam Smith mm-hmm. written by Murray Rothbard. And it goes through, it spends a lot of time on the history of the usury laws and how for the longest time they were it was prohibited to lend money and charge interest for it. But it was this tension that existed between the church and kind of the, the governments of the time or the economic thinkers of the time more accurately. Because the economic thinkers pretty quickly realized that if you don't have a lending market, you can't really have an advanced economy. And if you don't have interest being charged on loans, you can't really have a lending market because there's no incentive for anybody to lend money if they can't earn interest on it. And so there was this tension between the uh, the economic thinkers who are like, we really need to be able to do this. And then the church saying, well, the Bible says we can't do it. I don't know what to tell you. And so there was against the law for a long time. And then finally it was sort of hand waved and they were like, well, we need to let people lend money. So we're going to get rid of that commandment. But uh, I think that's an interesting development over time is that this, this biblical teaching about economics fundamentally, which I think was initially intended to be within a tribe, uh, like a Jewish tribe. They said, yeah, don't don't charge your brother interest. Don't charge your tribe member interest. If you want to charge someone else interest, that's okay, but not someone who's in your family, basically, essentially. I think that's the intention behind it, but it was interpreted so broadly over the years that I think it, it really hindered economic growth for a very long time. And of course, by hindering economic growth, it increases poverty and, and decreases yeah. wealth. I mean, the church has had to correct a lot of teachings in the past. We're an institution run by fallible men people have unreasonable expectations for the church every time some atrocity shows up like we're seeing right now with you know all the scandals and the sex scandals in the church we're like oh i mean obviously you have trust in someone that claims to be uh you know serving god and when they violate that trust so grotesquely that's very damaging and sinful but you also have to look at me like this is just these are just people like they're gonna mess up but when it comes to the so we've had to correct a lot um and I think a, I think a lot of the mistakes, especially in modern America, when we read scriptures and teachings from thousands of years ago by early church fathers, we read it in English. Mm-hmm. It usually wasn't written in English. Usually not. And we read it as if it was written for 2020. Yeah. And no context is applied. I went to a small Protestant school growing up, and they were very, you know, solo scriptura. If it wasn't in the Bible, it can't be true. Uh, we read the King James Version because it was only a version you're allowed to read. Right. And we read it in English, and there was never any talk of, like, well, what was actually going on? What was the culture? What was the context? You know, the translations of the words change over to English, and, like, there's only one word for five words. Um, so it gets real sticky. And I think, to your point, I have read about the interest. I believe there, there probably is a lot of context that needs yeah. to be added there, but also... Like, the church has had to amend their teachings in the past. That's why we have councils like Vatican I and Vatican II and the Trents and Nicaea yeah. to correct errors. Yeah, it's interesting about the context because there's certainly a lot of things you need more information about to understand what they're saying. It particularly applies to Old Testament commandments. Like, the one that always cracked me up is in Leviticus. They say uh, you can't round off the corners of your beard as a commandment. And so like, I think that's why Jews often have like Orthodox Jews have these long sideburns and everything. It's forbidden to round off the corners of your beard. But as I understand it, it was a, there was a neighboring tribe that would shave their, um, that would cut their hair and their beards into as, as perfect of a circle as they could get it as a form of sun worship. 
So it was viewed as idolatry because you're worshiping the sun. So what they were really prohibiting is cutting your hair in this way as a form of sun worship. But now there's no context for that. 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later, people just think, oh, you can't cut the corners of your beard. We can't, we can't get a haircut. Um, and I don't think that's what it meant. And there's a lot of commandments in the Old Testament like that. And I think the context makes it a lot more interesting and more specific to the time and place rather than a universal guideline for how people should live for the rest of time. Yeah, there's another kind of to that point that's that, you know, things become codified into culture. But then there's actually like a very strange reason why it started anyways. Yeah. I know during the Crusades with the Muslims and the Christians used to fight each other. The Christians were all become clean shaven and the Muslims would grow beards. And you think it's some religious reason. It's not at all. And the smoke and heat and dust of battles and horses clashing, things start all looking the same. Yeah. So to help identify who's friend and foe, the Muslims grew beards. So don't kill the bearded guy next to you. And this vice versa for the Christians. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but now, you know, it's still, you know, to, to be a my one of my good friends and neighbor is uh, Muslim and we have some pretty awesome conversations. Uh, but he talks about he recently shaved his beard because he's like kind of a little bit of a libertarian rebel in his own mind. He was told like, oh, you're good, such a good Muslim by his imam for growing your beard. He's like, no, I'm going to show you anyway. <laughs> but we were talking. <laughs> so we, we were talking about that a little bit. And I was like, oh, I know why uh, it actually became so cultural for yeah. your side to grow beards. It's also kind of a disadvantage in a battle to have a lot of long hair hanging yeah. out, hanging down. <laughs> like that can really be used it's against a, you. It's not a good thing to have. True. It's like swimmers shaving their bodies or something. You know, you really don't want a lot of stuff people can grab onto and pull, pull yeah. during a battle. It's like the NFL players when someone runs by and grabs their long hair yeah. coming out of their helmet. And like, why would you even do that? Yeah, it's a bad idea. Yeah. But, I mean, other than there's a lot. I mean, there's been a lot of hot takes with this encyclical. I wanted to read the whole thing. But when I got into it, I was like, this is a 150-page well, book at least. Um well, we'd be remiss not to plug our upcoming uh, interview with Father Sirico, uh, which is being released soon on Kibbe on Liberty. That's kind of what got us into this topic in the first place and why we wanted yeah. to talk about it, in addition to the Pope being in the news. But we have uh, Kibbe interviewed Father Sirico from the Acton Institute, who is a Catholic priest and is very, uh, I think he's a very wise and learned man. And I'm interested to see uh, what they talk about. I think it's going to be a really entertaining yeah, episode. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that episode. I've been a fan of Father Sirico for a while. He is certainly... The most pro free market priest I know, and I think he, to your point, very learned, super yeah. articulate. Always enjoy listening to him. So check it out. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers, man. See you later. Salud. Salud. Salud.